This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's disturbing... (laughs) New, depressing, frustrating, long overdue in the world of books and reading. Today it is, at least. Sometimes it is. I, the The show title last week was The Rolling Reckoning, and I see you've uh, you've uh, taken on that jargon to do some follow-up. So maybe that's mm-hmm. our Rolling Reckoning. We have a new segment here. Uh, in the, what's We do Heroes of the Week, Turkeys of the Week, May Your Efforts Succeed and Fail, but maybe there's this section that's mm-hmm. The Rolling Reckoning, because a lot of it's coming and continue to come here. Uh, let's see. Today is Thursday, April 29, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. It is a, it is mostly a follow-up week um, about big stories we talked about last week over the Blake Bailey biography and then mm-hmm. Simon & Schuster's mess, publishing's mess, that Simon & Schuster's the, the, the tip of the arrow of. It's coming for everyone. This yeah. question about what kinds of books what publishers are going to publish into the future is not going away there's a very good piece ron charles wrote in the washington post mm-hmm. props to to uncle ronnie over there <laughs> um who i haven't read in a while and he can have his own thing but i think yeah. that ron charles is saying what he says is t- indicative of something. yes it's yeah, not I just have... us right rebecca it, i mean that's, it's not right. just people our age i have some notes about that i think it's a meaningful shift expansion of the this movement and of these questions mm-hmm. that it's not just millennials with podcasts and Gen Zers on Twitter or wherever right. Gen Zers right. go to talk about these issues it's members of the establishment and it doesn't get much more capital E establishment than the head of the Washington Post book I, I was trying to think now that Kakutani is Writing picture books with Bette Midler, I guess, is what she's doing in her in her um, whatever post mm-hmm. role. It's like Dwight Garner, Janet Maslin, Ron Charles. And, I mean, and I, what, what I'm saying is there is no there is no hang a lantern on it reviewer kind of person. Right. Anymore. Yeah. They're I think just, that that position's there vacant. could be a big piece in the New York Times book section, but Pamela right. Paul's name is not like yeah. is not a name in book reviewing to mm-hmm. I think the general reading public the way that right Kakutani and Janet Maslin and Ron Charles are. And I mean we talk a lot about celebrity book clubs, but I think that's the spot that celebrity book clubs blew up as much as anything. Yes. Is like the the traditional book reviewer, starred review, X gave it a name. Like you, you just don't see that. It just doesn't I think matter. it's I think you're right. It was book curation for for boomers and beyond and yeah. that has shifted from being you know traditional media the book reviewers and traditional media to being celebrities and sort of more mainstreamy pop mm-hmm. culture touching right. sorts of things yeah which is probably i mean 
I don't know if it's good or bad. It's certainly more uh, democratic's not the right word I'm looking populist of a way of mm-hmm. thinking about it. Um, anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. And I guess the other thing I say is not not it's not that since Ron Charles is now on the train, it doesn't validate the existence of the train. Right. Just the, the amount of steam the train has. Um, that uh, yeah, that, that well, he's on board. Anyway, we'll get we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, uh, thank you for all your moms, dads, grads. We are not closed to recommendation requests. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them, but uh, thank you so much um, for, for writing in. We're going to record that next week. You've already done some notes, it looks like. I, I saw you were, you're mine. I saw you out there mining our Slack channel for ideas. I saw that. Well, I have a nose for when there's a question that neither of us is qualified yeah. to answer. <laughs> so. almost, that's almost like after 500 episodes, we know what we can talk about. <laughs> right. <this. laughs> uh, so, yeah, I called on our contributors for ideas about some of the ones that I was like, I could Google my way to an acceptable answer, or I could ask people who really know right. <laughs> about this. So I asked them. And, and, you know, there's a really nice variety of questions this time around, mm, and mm. I didn't run into, I don't think I ran into any where I think we're going to have to like fight over who's going to get okay. to recommend one of our shared favorites. So that's no RSTLNEs in there. I don't think so. There's one that might be a little ripe for a Tiny Beautiful Things recommendation, but like, come on, everybody needs Tiny Beautiful Things. It's a really good point. It's like, uh, I was just, uh, Amanda and I were DMing about the Shadow and Bone series. We both finished mm-hmm. that. And I was thinking about if we should do a segment or a special episode or something. And it reminded me of, I think it was our old uh, uh, Book Nerd Movie Club kind of shtick, which is like, are we sure Zendaya shouldn't be in this? Like, <laughs> are we sure this isn't a title Beautiful Things or Gilead reference? Right. Are we sure Are we sure this is not <laughs> Colson Whitehead? Or are we sure we're not going Just back to the well? Proceed directly to Tiny Beautiful Things for That's basically right. any question about life. Just read it, and then it's available to you to recommend, and it can be your Swiss Army recommendation That's from true. here on out. Anyway, let's do our first sponsor break, and we'll come back and do the actual follow-up rather than the preview of the follow-up we're going to do. It'll be the real follow-up this time. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. In uh, Rebecca's idiosyncratic interest department, the following the course of Murakami's t-shirt <laughs> line from announcement to release, 
I wouldn't. I would have lost a bet on this one. I have to say, I'm delighted, but I would have lost a bet that this would have made it to an agenda twice. Not once, yeah, but twice. you know, this is just serendipitous timing because Amanda just shared the link to the live T-shirt collection. It's on Uniqlo in the contributor Slack, and I was like, oh yeah, we talked about that on the podcast, and I think. You would have been on the right side of the bet, really, because I don't really personally care about Murakami's T-shirt mm. line. Like, I'm not a big Murakami fan. I'm not an unfan. He just has never particularly rung my bells in a way that made me right. go back. Um, and so I'm not, you know, the customer for the Murakami yeah, T-shirt line. You're more like line. a Murakami fan. <laughs> There's a show title candidate yeah, right there. There it is, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I wasn't like waiting for this to happen. You know, I didn't have a Google alert for a Murakami t-shirt line, but it appeared. I was like, oh, we talked about the fact that that was coming. I'm sure we have some listeners who do want a Murakami t-shirt. They're only $14.90, which mm-hmm. that is a, a very reasonable price point as Uniqlo is good for doing. And of course, one of them has a cat on it. And it's like a disgruntled cat looking, sitting at a desk that says Murakami Radio. The whole like line is named Murakami Radio. So if you're into this, there's a little variety of t-shirts you can check out. I would love to know if any of our listeners are going to be rocking a Murakami Radio t-shirt. I'm just delighted that on the list of like very serious novelists who would end up with a t-shirt line, I would have lost the bets that Murakami would have been one of them. It, he would have been like a millionth on my list of who's oh, going to do I that. See, I'm, not surpri- I'm really not surprised. He's a pop culture fan. He's a he's an interesting, strange guy. But yeah, it's and, and the T-shirts are as sort of understated and inscrutable as you yes. might expect. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know what these refer to. I might wear the Murakami Radio one that has a big vinyl LP in the middle because that's kind of yeah. weird. One is just the Norwegian wood in regular, you know, almost like a Garamond capitals. And then Hur- Hiroki Murakami, it's not the cover. Mm-hmm. It's not by. It's just very... <laughs> it's just... And another one's a bird. I guess, you know, you're supposed to know it's the Wind Up Bird Chronicle reference mm-hmm. there because that... No, I'm sorry. Kafka on the shore is the reference there, but it's very small. Like, I don't know. This is this is for those of you who for whom Wes Anderson (laughs) is a little too (laughs) not twee enough. Yeah, there's one that has a half moon on it, and then says, "Don't let appearances fool you." But in mirror writing, yeah, it's backward. Or yeah, yeah, not backwards. In mirror writing, that's right. And that's from Q of Q T eighty four as a reference to that. So, All right. You know. Some of them are low on stock. The low on stock ones are the the Kafka on the Shore one. The I'm not surprised the Murakami Radio with the cat yeah. is, uh, seems to be the most in demand. That seems, there you go. The, if you were going to pick an iconic, if you were going to guess at an iconic Murakami situation, it's a cat for sure. Yeah. Eating food and playing jazz. Right. So that would be sort of the, the <laughs> thing there. Okay. So... No free ads, a cat eating food and playing jazz. Are we just talking about Garfield? Yeah, I guess, right. <laughs> Mondays, right? Uh, I guess these are... Uh, um, I guess let's start with the Amazon one because it's a little okay. bit quicker. 500,000 workers are getting raises mm-hmm. uh, from Amazon, ranging from 50 cents an hour to $3 an hour. I don't think we talked on this show. It came out between our discussion of the Amazon union effort in Alabama being voted down and then Bezos' last letter as CEO mm-hmm. of Amazon where he explicitly talked about needing to do better for their workers, which is, I guess, if you have, what, trillion-dollar company and you've got some more – that's quite a flex to be like, on my last one, now we're right. – Now Amazon needs to – okay, Jeff. 
<laughs> All right, easy, easy, easy partner. Um, so how much of that is response to the union? How much it is something that is maybe not directly related to the union, but, but related to growing calls for Amazon's accountability and anti-tech, uh, and a, you know, monopoly talk against tech companies, against Amazon in particular, how much of it might be genuinely wanting to do better? Throw it all into a basket, but it, the timing is too strange to <laughs> discount completely that yeah. the union is, unionization this- effort. And this is one of the reasons why unions, even even if they don't win, the effort matters, mm-hmm. right? I think that's yes. another thing that's under I underappreciate sometimes is a failed effort can still win things for workers in that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a fired Amazon worker attempting to unionize other mm. warehouse employees outside of Alabama. I haven't gotten into the details of that piece, but yeah. it's linked in, in this Verge piece. And I think you're exactly right. Like we won't know ever really what Bezos's or Amazon's real motivation for this is other than I think it's fair to assume now that they also can see that a reckoning is coming yeah, or has right. begun. There's been a real shift in the way that the public understands and talks about Amazon. And even folks who are still very frequent Amazon customers, even just like mm-hmm. in my personal circle, talk about like talk about it regrettably, you know, like, yeah. oh, I wish I could get myself away from Amazon. Yeah, right. It's not yeah. like nobody's like stoked about being reliant upon Amazon as a customer. And mm-hmm that recognition that maybe you're feeding into or taking advantage of a system that is unfair and treats people poorly in many situations. So I'm glad to see raises for whatever reason. Like ideally it's for altruistic humanitarian reasons of we treat people fairly and we pay them for their work and we want to create good working conditions. But even if it's just because he wants to avoid additional future yeah, bigger even problems. Even just strategic, that's still good. Right. Or, it's still or, good. Better. The net result is still an improvement. Yeah. And I hope that Amazon workers continue to attempt to unionize and organize for as long as it takes to push Amazon into the position of having good pay and good working conditions for everyone. And maybe they can get there without unionizing. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Amazon would like is to not have to deal with unions, but it's going mm. to take more than this. And there's just no way that this timing is an accident. I, I, I you know, if we could go to the court of truth, that's, that's <laughs> adjacent to the court of rightness where you could just mm-hmm. find out what's the truth <laughs> versus what's right. I would be surprised if it's not a meaningful piece of the pie uh, yeah. of that decision too. Let me speak. This reminds me, I had a little birdie conversation this week. Oh, I love um, a birdie and, conversation. And this was, it was about Amazon, but insofar as the, as it was about audible though, and we mm-hmm. were talking about audiobook consumption over the last year, last several years. And I asked someone in a position to know in the industry, or at least have some data. I said, is my sense that Audible is, you know, it's still the dominant player in audiobooks, mm-hmm. retail audiobooks. But is it, am I right that it's slipping? Am I right that it's not, it, it's still the 800 pound gorilla, but it was the zoo, right? And now it's just one. And they're like, yeah, actually, mm-hmm. again, it's still the major player. But these, you know, Libro, Apple's really picking up, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is something I haven't seen covered. Now, this could just be this is for this one birdie's tree, you know, that they're seeing particularly. But I, I, it's a big enough tree that I think it is indicative of the forest to some degree. 
and I don't know. And I expressed, I think I've expressed on the show my soon. I've unsubscribed from Audible. And it's not really an anti Amazon thing, though I sort of get that moral thing for free. I just don't want the subscription. You know, you've t- we've talked about this a million mm-hmm. years. Treat me like an adult. Tell me what the price of the audiobook is. Let me buy it as a one off, and I can go listen to it. Is that so? Like this stuff where you go on Amazon and you're like, I want to see the audiobook of, I don't know, I was just looking at uh, the new uh, Malcolm Glad- Gladwell, the mm-hmm. Bomber Mafia, which, say what you will about Gladwell, World War II bomber stuff. It's like I can't have to look at it. Oh, it's like man. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> a Gladwell World War II book is like the daddest of dads. Yeah, it, it's it's very it, it's not very long. And I was like, how much is it? And I'm like, I, I want to buy it as a one off for audio because also the Gladwell thing over there at uh, Pushkin Industries, which is mm-hmm. his company, one of he's one of the owners or founders or I'm not exactly sure, but a, a big mocker over there at the company is these highly produced audiobooks that are more like audio document documentaries than the audiobooks. So I'm like, all right, audio is the way to do it. And I go on Audible and it's like free with your Audible subscription. It's like, I don't, I don't have, I have to click through the thing and it's like a thousand dollars, but I go over to Apple, it's like $14.99, one off. I mean, it's still expensive, but at least I can do it. And I do wonder if there's a couple different things here where Audible has a dominant position and a dominant business model that's extremely lucrative. And there might be a bit of an innovator's dilemma situation going mm-hmm. on to quote the Clay Christensen thing of like, there's some disruption from below or at least other com- competitors doing something different. And, and Audible's business model has been so lucrative and their position so dominant that they are loath, of course, to change it, mm-hmm. which then reinforces the cycle of competition. So, on. so I'm interested to watch that, but I felt vindicated, validated, otherwise V-word about you know, my sense that I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one. And people I'm talking to are the ones like, I, I wanted Audible, but I want to do Audible. Just for all the things that we're talking about, too. And there's actually a UX experience there, too. And for all of Amazon's talk, and I think in a lot of ways, it's not just talk. It is true, is that a lot of what they do is focused on the customer having a great experience. Sometimes that's at the expense of the, the worker or the mm-hmm. retail. You know, like, but in this particular case, it doesn't. this is not in the user's best interest. Right. Like, th- this just isn't. So I wonder how long it will be. So that, th- there you go. That little something. I brought you a little something. Just I on appreciate the table there. it. Uh, so yeah, there's that, I guess, open, speaking of your, your employee, your workforce coming to the front, Mm -hmm. right? Um, we saw Simon and Schuster, the letter, this open letter to Simon Schuster from its workforce. We got some count. Um, there was 3,500 signatures from people outside Simon and Schuster and about 300 from people inside Simon Mm -hmm. and Schuster. I didn't look. Did you happen to see what is Simon Schuster like? What kind of matriculation rate are we talking about? Here? Oh, I look? did like, not look. Yeah, I, I intended to, and I didn't. Yeah. Um, but I would guess. I think there's a couple thousand folks in that Simon and Schuster. There be, have to be, right? Would you? I didn't really have a number in my. I didn't hadn't thought about this. Would you? Is that? Would, let's go work backwards. Was mm. that three hundred ish number over or under what your mental over under line would have been? If under. you could go back and think about naive Rebecca, under you would have thought about more. Yeah, okay. You would have well, expected more. I think. The, well, when I saw the three hundred number, the internal dialogue I had was like, "That seems low to me, yeah. given what I think the size of Simon and Schuster is, mm-hmm. and the." ferocity of the conversation which i agree mm-hmm. it should be a ferocious conversation yep. and i wonder i wondered about what outreach to get signatures on that yeah. looked like like is it just touching base with the people internally that you are pretty sure agree with you and there won't be any retribution for you mm-hmm. introducing this to them that's what i was wondering because about at too. some point those like the 
adjacent possible of those relationships does stop at some point where someone is like, ooh, you know, Susie in the office next to me seems like she would get it, but also maybe she's yeah. high enough high enough up in management that it would be too big of a risk for her to be involved with this. And we don't know what other kinds of conversations happened internally coming down from leadership hmm. in Simon and Schuster, but I I assume in a big company like that in any industry if you have sort of discontent within the ranks you also probably have some leadership trying to control it inside and talking to other managers about if or how to be involved and if or how to respond but i i think if simon and schuster has as many employees as i think they do and that 300 ish represents like 10 percent of people signing it that's that seems low to me but i would assume that many more people agree with it than then felt that they could be, you know, actively participating. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that too. And maybe they agree with the spirit of the, and maybe not the language specifically sure, in here. Sure. We talked about some, there's some messaging and, and verbiage in there that even if you agree with like, I don't want to be working for for a publisher that publishes Mike Pence, maybe this particular articulation of that position mm-hmm. is not what you're looking for. Right. And converse, or not conversely, but alongside of that, Maybe you have. Maybe if your middle management are up and you do feel they shouldn't be doing my pens, you don't need to sign the thing because you can squawk about it internally, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna sign the thing online that's unsigned on a Google Doc, but I'm gonna go. I'm sure is gonna show up at the town hall and talk to other people and let it be known that I don't think we should be doing this or ask questions or otherwise um, apply pressure as people have the capacity to do so. Um, so I'm not sure where that's gonna go. I think the other. Look, this is there's a this is a centipede situation. There's a lot of shoes to drop here. It's not just another shoe. Um, centipede situation yeah. is a good show title. One. But like we get, we got news that you know um, William Barr's book is maybe a Simon and Schuster going to be title mm-hmm. slash Kelly and Kelly and Conway. This is going to heat up, not cool down. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the employees want to do next um, is going to be really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Well. I'm not sure. Is there much else to say about it at this point? Well, one of the the ways that it is heating up is that there now is a letter of intent from publishing professionals across the industry Mm. um, signed at this moment by 635 people. Um, Or no, more than that, because that count is as of the 21st of April. So I will refresh when we're done talking about (laughs) about this one. I don't need this window anymore. um, That says, you know, it's signed by authors and editors and uh, audiobook narrators and professionals from all over the industry doing what I was sort of wondering, wondering about last week, like, will there be some sort of coalition across publishing houses to reach some agreement about not publishing these folks? And the framing of this is one that I think this letter is better written. Mm -hmm. And the messaging here is a little more thoughtful, and I think more likely to succeed. But they say, we all love book publishing, but we have to be honest, our country is where it is in part because publishing has chased the money and notoriety of some pretty sketchy people, and has granted those same people both the imprimatur of respectability and a lot of money through sweetheart book deals. As members of the writing and publishing community, we affirm that participation in the administration of Donald Trump must be considered a uniquely mitigating criterion for publishing houses when considering book deals. And then goes on a little bit later to say, Son of Sam laws exist to prevent criminals from benefiting financially from writing about their crimes. In that spirit, those who enabled, promulgated, and covered up crimes against the American people should not be enriched through the coffers of publishing. And Mm -hmm. 
that is a connection to an external principle and an existing precedent that I think is really powerful and very smart. And it's not tied to some slippery slope of somebody's judgment about who is or isn't a gross political person who has done bad Mm -hmm. things and shouldn't get a book deal. And to be clear, someone is still going to have to make those decisions. There will still be, there are plenty of people in politics who have pushed forward policies that are incredibly harmful who did not work in the Trump administration. And there will continue to be. And a lot of those people could probably sell a lot of books. It's like somebody in publishing, editors and you know acquiring publishers are still going to have to make judgment calls. But this at least is saying, let's all just agree as a starting place not to give these sweetheart book deals to anybody from the Trump administration, because that administration committed crimes. Working in that administration was functionally being an accomplice, if not a person directly committing the crimes. And we can separate that from something else, um, from some other just, you know, I don't know, Senator Kevin McCarthy, who's my favorite punching back mm-hmm. lately, from him getting a book deal, which would still be gross, but it's a, a meaning of a, a meaningful difference of both kind and degree, I think. Um, so I was really interested to see the letter writers here, and I don't know who drafted this letter, um, but to see whoever drafted this come to the place of, you know what, like, let's call them criminals, because many of them were and are, Mm -hmm. and let's rely on that existing rule that we have, you know, and I don't think they're asking for a law to be made that prevents a politician who did bad things from getting a book deal. But asking publishing to acknowledge what we're talking about here with children in cages, involuntary surgeries on captive women, the claiming that the coronavirus was a hoax and letting people die um, on your watch and many, 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 many other things are criminal behaviors or acts of criminal negligence. And we don't want to give book deals to criminals. Seems like a pretty good place to start. Yeah, I think we're... The Jonathan Carp letter seems to suggest that there maybe is a line and, you know, we know it and we see it and we'll get there. This is suggesting that there is indeed a line and it's one that we could maybe make a principle around. Mm-hmm. I think there's still plenty of room for this to be a really hard thing to enforce in a way that everyone everyone's not going to feel good about. It. But let's say within right. the publishing industry, within the big publisher is going to feel good about because someone who promulgated like okay what does that mean exactly is it every member of the Trump administration because anthony fauci was right there it's hard for me to say anthony fauci shouldn't get a book deal so like all there's all all the things happen yeah, like, but they were starting you, to move how, right, do, how do you define administration like is working for the cdc during yeah. this presidency does that count yeah that's that's a challenging so, so question so it's I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, because that's what, you know, that's maybe the exception that proves the rule. But like this idea of the son of Sam law is interesting of like prevent criminals Mm -hmm. from benefiting. So, okay. If you are convicted of a crime, on the other hand, publishing gives book deals to people all the time who've been convicted of crimes. We just saw the thing cherry turned into a Netflix movie from Mm -hmm. jail, robbing banks. Yeah. Not great, Bob. Not what you want. And that's okay. We don't have any, like, this feels like an, an external principle, but I think it, it introduces a different rather than better set of problems because mm-hmm. the, 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 the idea is the same. Now, again, I don't want, I'm not trying to forestall the conversation. I'm just saying this is the next step. I don't think this is the end of how you get to a place like this. I think this is something we've learned in business that you can have all the principles you want. You can have all the guidelines you want. You can have all the process doc you want, but life, 
uh, <laughs> Jeff Golden finds a way to find the cracks and the edge cases yeah, and, and the gray areas. You, and just owning that is part of the, the yeah, process. And, you know? and you always have to make judgment calls. I think yes. the maybe a first step version of publishing coming to some understanding of how to do this is something that Frankenstein's together several things like, mm-hmm. okay, let's not give book deals to criminals. Let's look at folks high up in the Trump administration that we can tie to things we equate as crimes or things that are literally crimes. Yes. yes. Not give them yes. book deals and then start to talk about the other principles we're going to hang our hats on when we have to make edge case decisions that call for mm-hmm. that, that require a judgment call because there will always be something that requires a judgment call. And that, I mean, the money, oh, sorry, the, the I'm all worked <laughs> up, Jeff. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, I'm right there with you. <laughs> the rubber hits the road there with being willing to give up some money. That's right. For your principle. To not sign on the line, which is not it is. I heard somebody say recently, and it's a thing that I'm just going to keep coming back to. It's not your principle until it's cost you something. Mm -hmm. You don't have a principle until you have sacrificed something in order to uphold that principle. And that's really where the Jonathan Karp approach fails for me. It's like the idea of a principle, the idea of values without actually sacrificing anything we're, yeah. we're going to keep publishing mike pence let's just remember that some of our books aren't harmful you know okay well you haven't given up anything yeah. and to like to transition just a little bit to the the blake bailey stuff and ron mm-hmm. charles's great column in the washington post this week talked about both the blake bailey situation and what's going on at simon and schuster i think that publishing needs to reckon with the fact that I think they're overestimating the appeal of a lot of these books. Like how much are you paying Kellyanne Conway and how much are you paying Mike Pence and how many people are really, how many real readers are going to buy those books? Because one thing we know is that the GOP has like a large machine for doing bulk purchases that land titles like this on bestseller lists. But does the reading public really want these books? Are you really going to make meaningful money on them and even if you are i still don't think that's sufficient but what are you what's the opportunity cost what voices are you not putting out into the world what new authors are you not bringing on that you could you could publish you know probably 20 debut novels for the cost of one mike pence memoir like you're making choices about which voices to platform and implicit in that is which voices are you not platforming mm-hmm. and some acknowledgement of that and of the fact that if we stop doing these if we stop rewarding folks who commit these kinds of behaviors and put the money somewhere else, that goes toward positive growth for the industry and for society, for our democracy. And if publishers are going to reckon with their businesses as not just neutral platforms, but as responsible for the consequences of the information that they put Mm -hmm. out into the world, then what kind of world are you trying to make and what kind of books go towards that. Yeah. I mean, I think that point has been talked about more over the last week than certainly I thought about. And I think that we talked about it all is like, there is the giving money piece, right? There's the, have the name and the call fund. The other thing is how much attention it sucks up from your company, right? Right. Because it's going to be a big deal. There's going to be a lot of effort. What could happen if that attention was placed elsewhere? And if it's the difference between Simon Schuster staying in business or not, say that. Mm -hmm. Because at least we would know. Right. At least. And I, I also I don't believe that right. they're going to be part of PRH. It's a big ship. 
are they afraid from like a competitive point of view, like in the Godfather saying, we, you know, the five families saying we've got to get into drugs because if we don't, people are going to take our turf because that's the next thing because they're going to have all the power because they have all the money. So they're going to take the stuff we usually the other less bad, but still really bad stuff we do, at least according to them. Mm hmm. Are they worried that like, well, some conservative press is going to pop up and they're going to get all the dollars and we're going to lose our, we're going to lose our <laughs> place as 75% of trade like, publishing as PRHS and it's just not going to, yeah, it's just like, not going to happen. I have questions about how these books keep landing at Simon and Schuster. Like this seems to be an established yeah. pattern in the last couple of years, at least with Simon and Schuster that started with the Milo book and then the Woody Allen situation. And now this series of Trump administration. So Woody Allen has shut. I mean, I keep getting that I'm wrong. Pretty it doesn't sure matter. Woody, it feels, I, the, your, your, your larger point is right. So yeah, I shouldn't have yeah. there. No, it's okay. I'm pretty Google. sure Woody Allen was Simon and Schuster, but we can Google it later. Yeah. Um, that like is Simon and Schuster consistently outbidding everybody else or is everybody else passing? On these books or is it some combination I don't know thereof but how know. does this keep happening yeah look what does Madeline McIntosh think about all this right. this is her this is her this circus is coming to town and it's going to be in her yard right like Madeline McIntosh the CEO of uh, Random House Penguin Random House mm -hmm. um, and then Bertelsmann on top of that right that which yeah. is the parent company there's turtles all the way up uh, as, as these turtles all the way up. <laughs> um, Woody Allen was Simon and Schuster. Was Simon and Schuster. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I keep thinking it's that shit. Anyway, uh, thank you for that, um, for correcting my erroneous correction. Well, we know um, I like to confirm it when I'm right. So Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the best time to confirm. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I think that's the piece that I've ultimately come back to for myself. You know, we talked a little bit last week. I said, you know, the 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 thought experiment of if you had a chance to do it, even if you believed in, you know, this is a world historical document, which it will be, you know, whether you like it or not, it's going to be a world mm -hmm. historical document. Would the idea of seeing like, um, I did it my way by Mike Pence or whatever it's going to be called with a book ride or insert your company here that you work for Colophon. Yeah. What does that do to your gastrointestinal state? Mine <laughs> decreases it meaningfully to think mm -hmm. of it that way. This is also my personality. I'd rather make $1 I feel good about that too that I'm like, uh, like that's uh -huh. just my personality. And I don't know that, I know everyone doesn't feel like that, is is publishing thinking in those terms. Because my other little birdie stuff I heard this week, inclusion, diversity, mm -hmm. it's been the talk, we've heard the talk, but these these are people close to the metal, booking campaigns, thinking about cam campaigns, getting direct. Like I heard stuff from Big Five publishers saying we want to be the most diverse publishing house in the industry. We're trying to get more ad dollars to places that are, you know, support inclusion of historically underrepresented voices, but also owned by them, operated by them, this thing that they're doing. They're looking at their budgets. They're looking at their authors, everything else. And I think that cognitive dissonance is part of it here, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's a meaningful part that's underlying is that there's talk on one side about doing all these things and the other side, doing my pens. Maybe maybe people would still be as angry if we we weren't having all this motivation wave reckoning on the other side of like we're going to do better about this and also still put. Can you do both? That, I think that's the essential question that a lot of employees and you and I are kind of asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't know if you can do both. I think it's very challenging, but I can also imagine a situation where if the workforce is actually more diverse yeah. and employees feel that they're seeing meaningful work from these mm -hmm. companies in that direction and th that builds trust 
And if you trust that your company is, tr is trying to do these things and then they come and say, all right, we have these values of diversity and inclusion and we're a business that has to make money. A book by a vice president is newsworthy. It's part of the historical record. It's going to sell for a hundred years. It's going to sell for a hundred years. Here's how we think it's going to impact the bottom line this year. We know that not everyone will love it. We want to acknowledge that up front. Like there are so many ways you can get out in front of this. Mm. And it probably, it doesn't ever make it feel good. Right. But if you believe that your employer is working hard and making a difference in many other vectors of that, it probably goes down a little bit easier. Not that, and and I don't know that it has to go down easier, or that we want publishing to be. Yeah, able I guess that's a, that's, the, that's both, the question. Like, do we want and, to do we and, want the suppository you know, to be less and, more comfortable, or do we like, hey, wait a minute? <laughs> yeah, and if it's just the Mike Pence book, is that a different problem or a non-problem relative yeah. to that? It's this pattern, especially that Simon and Schuster mm. seems to have how does that feel different you know one thing that ron charles hangs a nice lantern on is this is having this push pull is a consequence in a good way it's a feature not a bug of having a more diverse That's workforce right. the, right. he says the real goal behind a diverse workforce is a wide range of experiences and ideas and people empowered to act on them and that in the earlier times where everybody in the executive office was white and most of them were men stuff like Blake Bailey gets pushed aside as locker room talk mm -hmm. um, and publishers were making their highly subjective judgments just based on right what mostly white men their own belt on showing is, is right their right. own their own yeah. sort of sense of how the world is put together yeah, yeah. and there's the uh, Ron Charles has a nice sentence here. For all Carp's high-minded allusions to appreciating the ideological spectrum, for many decades, those judgments were based on what white men considered important, validated, important, valid, and entertaining. And now that workforces are diversifying some, and folks just feel more empowered and able to speak up. They can organize with each other. We have the internet that lets us do these things, and they can speak back to their employers because the employer has said like if you roll mm -hmm. out making a statement of black lives matter and we want to be inclusive and then your actions don't line up with that your staff are teed up and they should be teed up to hold you accountable for it and to come to push back and that's what these folks are doing like the fact that you have this dissent within your ranks at simon and schuster is a sign that something is going right yeah that's right or you or you misunderstood what having a more diverse workforce meant. Did you really <laughs> think that just yeah. having a whole bunch of different people, different voices meant you were going to do everything the same way? Just a rainbow-colored group of yes How was that going to work? How yeah. was that? Like, it's, that's anyone who understands the kind of change that comes along with inclusion mm -hmm. should know that the, the status quo is going to change. And in ways for people in power often aren't going to like because you know why they're already in power everything worked out great for them the way things were going of course yeah. it feels like it's something you know why it feels like it because it is changing and as you mm -hmm. say it's a feature not a bug and you know what if some conservative publisher wants to be the sixth of the big five or whatever and they take all these people and they make millions of dollars selling to zealots in convention centers when they go on tour or whatever Go and God bless. I'll compete them in ways you feel good about. Yep. I'll compete them in ways you feel good about. 
Let's take a sponsor break. I've got a segment, a quick okay. one that I, I told you I was going to do, but I didn't tell you what we're going to do. For the first time in six years, I bought myself a new dedicated e-reading book. <gasps> you did? A new Kindle, a refurbished Kindle Oasis. Okay. And I wanted to talk about it for a few minutes. I'm not sure if anyone's interested, but I've got feelings and thoughts about it. I... So. I am so interested because historically you have been an iPad reader. Yes. I know. This this might be just for an audience of one because I thought you might like this because we've talked about I I think still that probably the iPad Air is the best all-around reading device you can get. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is, especially if you read a lot of comics, it's full color and it's a, the right size, right? It's, you know, it's the, it's the size of a comic book. The other The other virtue of an iPad... Or I guess there's some other tablets, like the Samsung Galaxy tablets. They, they, I throw them all in there. Like a small LCD tablet that can have arbitrary apps on it is good. You can pick your apps. I can mm-hmm. pick my, my Apple Books rant I just went about. I can buy my book there and listen to it there if I want. But that's my phone. Is, I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm – one of the things that's going on here is my phone is outsourcing a lot of my audiobooks and my Libby and all that kind of stuff. And what books am I actually reading digitally? I read prose. I don't do a lot of illustrations. I'm not doing mm-hmm. cookbooks. I'm not doing comics anymore myself. My kids are doing, I'm reading Lumberjanes and print and stuff like that with oh, my kids. Lumberjanes with the kids. Uh, I mean, what else do you want, right? So throw it out, throw the iPad in the tray. But the thing is, my iPad is big and it's heavy and it's reading season outside and it sucks to read outside. <sighs> iPads suck to read outside, Rebecca, right? They just don't have the same thing. They do. I'm a devoted iPad mini user. That's also a great device. It is. All the same things I just said, right? But if it's sunny and you want to be in the sun, Mm -hmm. you're boned for a reading experience. You really are. You really really are. It's not a great experience. And I'm reading so much. I've read a lot more recently. And I had an old Kindle that's dead. And I was like, you know, what do I really want here? The charge, the new Oasis, I got the Oasis one. It's a little bit bigger and I'm 6'4", so I'm a big fella. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. big. So like a bigger device in my hand is, is fine with me. I'd rather have the big one. In fact, I wish the Oasis was a little bit bigger. Even, even I'm just sort of like, this is kind of wee in its own way. But it's a good size. It's bigger than the paper white. It has a backlight. You can also read it in direct sun. It also has this warming sort of, you can have a kind of a yellowish tint to the oh, paper nice. too, which is kind of different on the eyes. And also reading at night, I find that, to be even better than write, reading on an iPad, which is frankly still looking at a computer screen. And I don't want that. I, mm-hmm. I look at screens all day. Um, I do, frankly, most of my digital reading, I do. I, do, I buy deals from BookRite deals a lot. I do Libby, which I can send to Kindle. And I do Galleys, which I can get off Edelweiss. And it's a little bit of a hacky thing to get on my Kindle, but I can still do it. But you know what? For dedicated prose readers, a dedicated e-reading device is wonderful. Like I, I ripped off seven books in like 10 days, which is... Yes wild for me and some of it I was, I was plowing through shadow and bone and catching up okay. some stuff i was really looking forward to so i had like like the, the kindling was dry you know i was ready for the match um, <laughs> the kindle oh, the kindling. kindle the kindle <laughs> yeah i didn't even know i was doing that um it's a little expensive i bought a refurb i got the eight gig with ads so it's like kind of the cheapest one you okay. can get it's 209 is what it was um so that's a little pricey but i gotta say the only thing i really don't like about it is again i wish it was an eight inch screen rather than a seven inch screen i think it would just it would just handle my my man hands a little bit better that way but the other thing is the regular kindle has like kind of this nice rubbery soft touch thing and this is aluminum backed Mm. and it doesn't feel great the edge is a little sharp i looked at cases and it's kind of a weird shape i don't think that's going to work so i think i'm just going to to get used to it but interesting it is also it's a wonder it's a great device like the kindle oasis is a great great 
great reading device. It, it, it's fast. It, it has a high, it has 300 um, PPI, which is about double of what a normal, normal Kindle does. So it's really high, sharp definition text. I'm out there in full sun. I can read. And my iPad I've had for a while, and so it's battery life kind of is like, you know, this is what happens with mobile batteries. I don't know what to tell you, whether it's your, your, your phone or AirPods. Like, you do lithium-ion charges over and over and over and over again every day. Yep. They wear down. The Kindle, I can charge in, and I don't have to worry about it for two weeks. Whereas iPad, I'm charging every night. If I forget to do it, I'm out of juice and blah, blah, blah. I'm, in oh, this, I'm trying to read outside, and I'm turning the screen all the way up to brightness to try to see anything, and that nukes the battery. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm not sure where people are in this, but I, I kind of came back around to just having the – I can also fit it in, like, my jacket pocket, which is kind of <laughs> nice. So if I'm walking outside, because I've got big 6'4". I was just clothes. thinking, imagine having jackets. Like, I'm, you know – yeah. What, 16 inches shorter than you? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. This thing This thing is probably an iPad mini uh, to people that are a little bit smaller. But I, you know, I'm really, I'm really liking it. Maybe it's just one of those, you know, romance of the new and you know, mm. you're falling back into a habit. And I like the books and I was, I got sucked into them. Um, you know, I, I picked up Pachinko, which I never did. I never got around to that. And that's wonderful, as everyone said it was by Min Jin Lee. And just like stuff like that. So I'm not sure. I'd love to hear from listeners if they've, abandon their e-readers if they're doing e-reading if they're doing it on ipads like i've recommended over time if i again if i was doing big illustrated book cookbooks um if i was doing comics photography you know non-fiction with a bunch of illustrations the truth of the matter is i just don't i just don't do that as much anymore plus i have an mm-hmm. ipad so i'm lucky that i if i want to do something that needs an ipad i can do that so i can have two devices but i think my ipad's going to go in the drawer for a while because that's all i was using it for is reading yeah, that's all that's, i use my ipad for i think that's where That's where we differ in the use cases is Mm -hmm. I use my iPad for reading, but then I also use it for like watching Netflix in the bath Yeah, or I take it when I travel and then you can do all the things at at one time, Mm -hmm. you know, watch a movie or read a book or um, check my flights or any of those things. Now that flights are like a thing in the world again. Right, right. But if it were just about the e-reading experience, I would probably also lean towards a dedicated e-reader that was more flexible because what has shaken out in my reading life is I'm usually reading something on my iPad and something in print. And if I go outside, I just take whatever the thing in print is, which Mm -hmm. is fine. You know, I'm very rarely like, oh, I want my iPad book, but I have to take my print book outside instead. <laughs> but it's <laughs> I like just don't ad- have print. Yeah, I just yeah. Don't, I just don't it's just like it an additional anymore. layer of consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm that's not sure. Super and interesting. I don't, and the the hardware hasn't changed for several years. The only thing I would really change about honestly, again, it's hard to make devices that humans interact with that's good for all shapes and sizes, right? So I acknowledge I'm on the one end of the bell curve on this, you know, the hand feel. Like I get the <laughs> biggest phone I can get, right? Because yeah. it just feels that feels better to me. But then I, I think the backing. But if it weren't for those two things, I'm not sure what I'm looking for. I'm not. I, yeah. I, I can see you know, why they haven't changed the hardware that much because this is kind of the end of the technological road yeah. when it comes to this. Bob and I were talking recently about he's been on a coffee journey the last several oh, years, which I think go. you can probably relate to. Where like the method of making his coffee got increasingly complicated for mm-hmm. a couple of years, and now it has contracted back to a very simple method. And he was like, you know, I liked the feeling fancy of making coffee in this complicated method. But I think I have come to the place of all you're really trying to do is get hot water over ground up beans and transmit the flavor in like an efficient way where the water's still hot and you get what you're looking for. And it turns out that the simple method actually gives me the result that I desire at this point. And I think this happens like that if we were music wonks instead of book people, Mm. we would probably be like coming back around to like, you know, 
Well, I don't know that music has a similar. Maybe well, Neil maybe Young released this high fidelity <laughs> music player digital thing that's supposed to be way yeah. better than MB3s right. and all yeah. this kind right. of stuff like, and the giant headphones mm-hmm. that right. you got to plug into mm-hmm. like a transformer, yes. yeah. you know, like all that kind of stuff. And then but, you come around, and it's like, you know, what am I actually trying to do here? I'm trying right. to get but Paul actually, Simon right. or Beyonce into my ears. Either. Right, what and I it doing turns here? out that doing that with Spotify and your AirPods yeah, is about great. as good as you need it yeah. to be. Like maybe that you get a top ten percent difference from doing the fancy thing but there's extra work there too and i think there's something to be said for that of like boiling down to like what am i really looking for from my yeah. reading experience and getting that as directly as you possibly can yeah that's right and you know and i'm lucky that i can do both right that i've got mm-hmm. the i've got my ipad and i've got the the e-reader as well but for for those of you out there who are investing in your reading lives i wonder if you've come around back at yeah, all because it's been it's been a while since i looked at it seriously but i realized it's so nice here i was like I don't want to read outside with the iPad because I can't see the damn thing. Yeah. What else um, did you burn through? Um, Pizza Girl. Did you read that? I can't remember the author's name. It came out last year. It's a novel. It's like it's like if an indie movie were a book. No, um, we I did not. Some other time. Yeah, it was one of those PRH um, darling kind of mm. critically acclaimed, and no one read it. Um, <laughs> but it was pretty. It was pretty good. I did all three Shadow and Bones. I did Uchinko. I caught up with. Uh, um, God, there's something else. What was it? Oh, Gentleman Moscow. I'm halfway through right mm. now, The Immortals, because we were talking about, like, that's mm-hmm. one people re- asked for recommended, and I haven't read that one before. Um, I did um, Star of the Sea, Aaron Morgenstern. Uh, the, the less said, the better. Agreed. Right yeah, so that's another thing. And then um, uh, up next is Lee Bardugo. Um, okay. For me, The Ninth House. And then I've got I've got some galleys. I'm looking Ooh. for the other black girl. Is on my yes. List. Oh, that's on my galley list too. So anyway, um, anyway, that, that that's what's what's that's what's new from um, the world of books and reading on my side. We better do one more sponsor break and then we'll uh, get out of here. All right, um, we kind of we kind of mushed all these up. Do we want to say anything yeah. else about Charles's piece? I think take some time to read it. You yeah, know? it's in the show notes. It's, it's uh, in book the show notes. And, and to pick back up the thread from the top of the show. I think it is important and needs to be celebrated that functionally an old white guy of the publishing establishment is coming out using his giant platform to talk about these issues in a way that is affirming. But as you said, it's not like now they're valid because Ron Charles is in the conversation. These have been valid concerns all along. But a sad truth of living in a white supremacist patriarchal society is that for meaningful change to like to get pushed all the way up through the ranks, you have to get white men on board in making mm-hmm. that change. And or at least that's what has been historically true so far. And it matters that there are powerful white men willing to use their positions to support the work that's being done inside the ranks of publishing that's being led by women and queer people and people of color and say, like, let me listen to you and amplify this message. Mm -hmm. Because the folks who are reading Ron Charles on a daily basis, many of them probably need to hear that from someone who looks and feels familiar to them yeah and and it's it's far too easy to dismiss an argument like this if it's oh that's the young people or oh that's the women again (laughs) having Mm. these issues or that's just the liberals and for 
you know, knowing what the readership, like the general demographic makeup of newspaper readership is, there are probably some older people or some more conservative people that are now going to be receptive to this argument in a new way because someone who they feel a little bit closer to or who they see as similar to themselves has made that argument in a way that they it's it's let those who have ears to listen here yeah. i think and everyone needs to hear it from a different place and that's something i've been thinking about a lot lately there's a new episode of the ezra klein show um about like how do we get beyond just knee-jerk cancel culture? And mm -hmm. he and his guests talk about the utilities of public accountability and some of the shaming that happens in cancel culture and also the real limitations of that in that sometimes it stops members of, of particular groups from having conversations with their people that can bring those people into a movement. Yeah. You know, we need white men talking to other white men about why feminism is important and about why racism is a real thing. And we need conservative people who are starting to get it to talk to other conservative people about why queer issues matter and why trans people should have rights. And those conversations are messy and people are going to make mistakes along the way. And if there, if there can't be any discussion about it until everyone's vocabulary is perfect, we're not going to get anywhere. So I'm really just glad to see somebody take their platform and use it in this way and hopefully reach an audience that isn't on Twitter, that's not signing petitions that make demands for change, but that can be open to understanding why this is important mm. and can shift whatever power they have then, whether it's power as a consumer or power as someone who knows somebody or who just wants to be a person in the world thinking about where their book dollars go and how mm. publishing might work. It really matters. Everybody who gets on board the train matters, regardless of like when you get on or where you get on or how much you have to left to learn. Because the train start. is made of people. People yes. are the train. Like we got it more on board. We need more people with 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 bigger platforms, more voices. Because then that starts to move the conversation from something that an executive or a board can think of as outside the mainstream, a fringe mm -hmm. opinion to now you are outside the mainstream. You right. are the one that you thought you were in the engine. Actually, you're falling off the caboose at this point. So get on board. Let's get out. You know, I saw something this week. I meant to, I meant this is more something I meant to put on our company slack, um, but I'm bringing it here because I think it's interesting. We, we've wondered in other media worlds, like what kinds mm. of conversations like this is going on. And I, I'm, I was assuming it's happening. I know it's happening in like the movies and music world and other TV and other kinds of places. I know it's happening in architecture because I, I live with an architect. There's the kind of stuff going on here too. But Epicurious this week, did you see this story? Oh, yeah. Epicurious is going to do they're beef. They're not going to do beef. No beef recipes because they think, and again, I think I understand. I, this is not my areas of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but like basically the agricultural practices around beef are super bad for the environment. Yeah. Like, you know what? We really can't, we don't feel good about participating in the, the industrial, industrial agricultural contract about beef specifically and what it takes to have a cow, make a cow and you know, all the water it takes in the land and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, that's their version of this. Yeah, That's their is. version of we're not publishing Mike Pence. And mm -hmm. you know what? I think they'll be fine. They'll have the same thing. That means that, I don't know, allrecipes.com. I don't even know what the bigger platforms are. <laughs> the, all the people looking for their um, their beef recipes are going to go over there. We're going to lose that. But we're well, going to yeah, compete. We're going to live our morals and we're going to see how we do. Right. And I think Epicurious is not pulling all their 
old recipes that include beef. Like the world doesn't need any new beef recipes. So Epicurious is going to be fine. And so is everybody else. And I think Epicurious could pull all their beef recipes and still be just fine from the huge variety of other recipes Mm -hmm. that you can find there. But yeah, that was really interesting to see as an example of a completely different industry making a judgment call about what their values are and what structures they're willing to support or not be a Mm -hmm. part of. All right, got to get out of here. Podcast at bookriot.com for feedback. Bookriot.com slash listen for show notes. Um, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, actually, we'll be back on Monday or on Wednesday as you're listening to this with oh, Mom's Dads and Grads. Right. Bonus episode be, season we're, we're, is we're coming. We're recording and, and releasing next week. Yeah, so next yeah. time you hear from us, we will not be talking about Gilead or <laughs> Night Circus. <laughs> <laughs> or little fires everywhere, or you yeah, know, some of it'll be fun. Like it's a good list time. this time. All right, as always, have thank a good you, one. Rebecca.